if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, it's kind of like you sort of have two choices. It's like either go big VC or, you know, totally bootstrapped and self-funded and really scraping by. And I think it's pretty interesting now to, to have this kind of third option. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning. Welcome back to the pod. Today's episode, chock-a-block full of TMBA themes. Some things that jumped out at me, how to rigorously vet new business and product ideas, funding dilemmas and new opportunities therein, like how long does it take to replace your income with your new product? We'll talk a little bit about that. And why repeating success, even when stair-stepping your way up, can be fraught and that there's still challenges even if you have momentum. For me, I've been an entrepreneur. I haven't had a job for over a decade. And yeah, I feel more confident than ever as an entrepreneur, but I still run into roadblocks every day. In fact, let me shout some news at you. Speaking of roadblocks, before we get into today's interview, live events are back. Something we've been working on this week. DC members, members of the Dynamite Circle are already organizing global meetups, and we are organizing an official one in October. So if you want to know more about that, head on over to dynamitecircle.com. And it's been about uh, 12 months. It was last June that Ian and I decided that Dynamite Jobs product was going to be our core focus going forward. And we signaled that by bringing on a CTO. Simon Payne's been on the show. And you know, when you're running a startup, like every day can feel like nothing's happening fast enough. So it was cool this morning. I I was writing a job ad for yet another person we're hiring. I sort of reflected back on the last 12 months and yeah, we've accomplished a great deal. So I might as well shout out this job we're hiring for. It was such a cool post to write. I've been looking forward to hiring this candidate assessment part-time person. So essentially, it's 10 to 20 phone calls a week with potential candidates for our clients. It's a cool part-time gig for somebody who has a lot of professional experience and people skills, but isn't looking for like a full-time high-stress grind. So it could be a really big win-win for somebody. Then I was sort of like, Thinking back over all we've done over the past 12 months, we've filled over 300 jobs, inspired over 15,000 candidates to fill out DJ profiles. We've six times our average monthly revenue. We've recruited a CTO and two junior developers. We've recruited a senior recruiter. (laughs) And we've launched three products, Business Pro, our remote recruiting product, and Candidate Pro, which is something for job seekers. I actually, while I was writing the job ad, I wrote a blog post. Remember what those were? I wrote a blog post over at Tropical MBA. So if you want to read a longer version of what we're up to, head on over to tropicalmba.com this morning, this afternoon, whenever you're listening to that and uh, give it a quick read. So I thought it'd be fun to dust off the blog and put up a post. Anyway, that's it for news. Hopefully we'll have a lot more cool stories and lessons learned. I guess the lesson of this is just every once in a while, you got to put your head up, take stock and, uh, you know, looking back over the last 12 months has given me an opportunity to plan for the next 12. So anyway, let's get stuck into today's guest, which is relevant to all this because he's got some momentum, some successes under his belt, but is also in the first year of a new project and a really exciting one at that. His name 
is Derek Reimer. He was the technical co-founder, along with Rob Walling, of Drip. And since exiting that three years ago, Rob has, of course, founded the remote software-as-a-service accelerator TinySeed, which is doing fantastic, and has also invested in Derek's new venture, which is what I called him to talk about. So I started this conversation by asking Derek about exactly that. The new SaaS product he's founded called SavvyCow, which has been up and running for around nine months. So SavvyCal is a scheduling tool. Basically, it allows people to create a scheduling link and send it to someone else and present kind of their availability, automatically subtracting out when they're busy and then allowing the person on the other end to grab a time slot and put a calendar event on everyone's calendar. So Derek, you know, I have a various selfish reasons for wanting to do this phone call. I think I can identify three. First off, I've heard your name on podcasts like a million times. You're this man of mystery, like the guy <laughs> behind the guy in the drip story. So I want to hear that. Yeah. The second is that I want your advice on how I can grow a better business. And then number three is we've been having trouble with scheduling across our company. One of the features that we found it's really difficult. Like if you want to change your availability on unique days across times, the current tool that we use just doesn't accommodate that. Is that something you're building towards? Yeah, that's actually one of the big kind of motivations for, or I guess UX challenges that I had experienced in other tools before, you know, embarking on building SavvyCal was kind of that ability to like quickly preview your upcoming availability that you're going to show to somebody and being able to make little modifications on the fly. You're at that moment of, well, okay. I'm feeling lazy. Yeah. Like, (laughs) do I want him to book tomorrow? You know, is tomorrow morning? Like I got this other thing. And even though technically I have availability there, according to my preferences, like, ah, not tomorrow morning, you know? And so a key part of our interface that's a bit different than than other tools is like you can open up your link editor and immediately what you see is a view of your calendar very similar to like looking at Google Calendar week view. You know, if you see a range of time on there that you don't want someone to book, you can just highlight it and then click block and it immediately blocks that out or you can vice versa like if there's a range of time that normally you don't allow but you're like no, I want to offer this piece of time up to this specific person I'm sending the link to you can drag on there and just click allow. So it kind of lets you do those last minute modifications really easily. It's something I've always wanted. I want to work our way back here the long way, but I'm just curious at this moment, like who are you to be solving this problem? I mean, this seems (laughs) like one of these things entrepreneurs, like this is an enormous thing. There is Google calendar, like you said, you know? Yeah. What was that feature or sense of confidence that you had? What got you in the game of like, maybe this could be something I work on? It's definitely daunting because there are a lot of established players in this market already. Some would say that this is a quote unquote solved problem already. You know, you have Calendly. They've been making the the news cycles in the startup space in the last year because I think they famously grew by, they doubled during COVID, I think. So they're at $100 million in revenue in what a lot of people view as just kind of a feature, like something that that a calendar provider could potentially build in. There's a lot of people who are kind of seemingly satisfied with Calendly. But I kind of recognized some underlying issues that are kind of around using scheduling tools. One of them being that there's this weird like power dynamic issue, right? Like a lot of people are hesitant to use a scheduling link 
or even like people receiving them will a lot of times feel sort of offended by it. And it doesn't make a ton of logical sense because it is a more efficient way to find times to meet with people. But something about it, it feels like, you know, if I send you a link, I'm kind of pushing the work onto you or saying like, I'm more important than you. So here, take a look at my calendar and you find a time that's good for me. It was like that dynamic that existed when people first started getting virtual assistants. Yeah. It's be like, oh, just talk to my assistant about it. It's like, wait a second. Like, I'm not good enough. You're saying you're better than me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you address this issue? It's, it's really perceptive of you to pick up on that. It's tricky because it's twofold. It's both a people problem and a tools problem, I think. Now, some people would argue that, you know, this is not something that could ever be solved with a tool. It's like you're either dealing with someone who has too big of an ego or just is too sensitive or something like that. And there's no amount of like product work could solve that. And I think probably there are some people where like, yeah, they will always be offended by a scheduling, like doesn't matter how nice the experience is or whatever. And so the idea was like, what if I could make the product feel more like a collaborative experience as opposed to a you're using my scheduling link and it's subtle, but like one of the ways that we've, we've done this is making it so that if you want to put in a little bit of extra legwork and personalize the link, like by pre-filling the person's name and email address for them, you can do that. So it shows up right there on the link. We kind of make it so like creating scheduling links is a really cheap thing to do in the product. It's not this big, heavy, like configuration lift to do. So you can just duplicate your link, throw the person's name on there. It shows their name on the page when they view it. And we have this overlay your calendar feature so they can toggle that and off their calendar uh, really quickly and see their events overlaid on top of your availability. The idea is to kind of position this as more of a collaborative space, and hopefully they will recognize this as like just an efficient way to hash out a time as opposed to that kind of icky feeling of like forcing someone to do work. Can you let the audience know like what scale the business is at right now? So I'm a solo founder, and I raised a little bit of initial capital from tiny seed actually i think friend of the show rob walling <laughs> behind that and i currently just i'm kind of in charge of doing all the work on the product itself i have some help from a marketer um cory haynes actually from bear metrics formerly i'm kind of on the cusp of hiring someone to help with some support because that's that's starting to become a, a bit of a burden for me to have that kind of background thread of always needing to check the support queue, but also make progress on the product. Are you making a living off of the product yet? I would say it's, it's kind of officially a close to the default alive state where I'm kind of, I'm able to pay myself a salary and our expenses are still exceeding. Like we're not technically profitable right now, but like I, I'm feeling the need to kind of push it a little bit. We have cash in the bank. You could be. Yeah, we could be if we pulled back. Congrats. That's fantastic. Yeah. Are you going to make it? What do you think? <laughs> We're kind of there with our new startup too. Like the exact financial description we could say. Mm -hmm. And I find myself some days waking up saying, are we going to make it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like we've, so actually we're just running a product market fit survey. I'm kind of, you know, looking for those, all those kind of solid SaaS indicators to, to show that like we're achieving product market fit and kind of that escape velocity. What are they? I'm most concerned with like, are users who are paying, are they activated and actually getting value out of the product? That's what I'm kind of focusing on the most because my big fear, and this is why I've been afraid to even like pre-sell like annual plans aggressively, because I want to make sure that 
we're not kind of building up a base of customers who we've kind of convinced them through through savvy marketing to put their credit card on file and sign up, but then they're not actually using the product and have kind of big looming churn risk. That's one of my big fears at this stage. So far, the numbers are looking pretty good. I'm happy with our churn. It's sub 10% kind of on a rolling average. And, and we have kind of this nice property of the business where it's seat-based. So if you get value out of it on an individual basis, and then you start inviting your teammates, we charge per seat. So that expansion revenue kind of is essentially offsetting our churn right now. Your product is $12 and $20 respectively right now, yeah? Yep. And now traditional SaaS wisdom would say, oh my gosh, that's pretty cheap. How do you contend with the idea that you ought to be building a much more expensive product? Having a low per user price is an attractive thing to me in the sense that like, it allows me to diversify risk across a bunch of customers, right? But obviously the biggest drawback is you have to somehow convert a lot more customers. Like if it was $50 a month, that'd be, you know, <laughs> uh, five times fewer customers that I would need in order to achieve the same level of revenue. So, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm thinking about it as like, definitely our marketing efforts have to be scalable, truly scalable in the sense that like, I, I don't have to be involved in converting people. I don't have, if I have to give demos all the time of the product, then $12 a month is not going to scale, for example. And so I think a lot of this is, yeah, it's been an interesting journey for me because my prior, prior businesses have always had a bit higher tier. At Drip, we started at $49 a month and really we're trying to target like that $99 a month tier was kind of our aspirational goal. But it was also a, a product that required a lot more handholding to get on board. That's the interesting thing about Savvy Cal, like, you're not asking much of your prospects because like, you don't have to like abandon your current calendar to try out Savvy Cal, right? I think that's a pretty cool strategic edge you have over something like Slack. Like, I have a fear of getting rid of Slack, even though I don't you know, have issues with it. So kind of speaking to your other question about like, why do you think you're in a position to tackle this space? I mean, part of it is like, I did a lot of soul searching on like, what's the ideal fit type of business? What are the parameters that line up well with my skill set and also my, my kind of desire in the type of company I want to build? And I kind of learned the hard way that it's really difficult to enter a market where there is such a high degree of stickiness with the existing products, right? And something like Slack, when I was trying to, trying to sort of compete with them, I discovered like, one, you have to convince an entire team to switch over, which is a, a big ask, even if you have one champion. That champion probably doesn't have the organizational pull to convince their entire team to to be on board with switching. And so like something like this, you know, you can easily just start using it and you can keep your other account running and the cost of switching over is relatively low, which I think for my own sanity was, was sort of something I, I needed to have as a part of the part of the business. Bring us back to your origin, if you could. Like, did it start with you with freedom with entrepreneurship or with development what was a moment that was pivotal for you yeah i did kind of the typical like went to college majored in something that i that i wasn't going to actually end up using i was good at math so i was like majored in math but i was really not sure what i wanted to do as a young adult i was a hobbyist software developer my dad had taught me and we had a computer in the house when i was when i was young he's a mechanical engineer and had been kind of like you just wrote scripts and stuff to make their processes more efficient at work. I had aspirations to 
to kind of be my own boss, but I didn't know exactly what that would look like. And I really actually didn't have the mindset of like marrying up my love for writing code with doing that. I just had this picture in my mind that like it, to be a professional software developer, you had to sit in a cubicle and write C++ and it was a, it was a drag. That's just the picture I had in my mind. Well, and it often is <laughs> like, yeah. not so inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. So I was like, I was thinking about being an actuary for a while, which sounds like it'd be a soul sucking job, honestly. <laughs> but by the time I graduated, I was like, okay, I don't think, I think I know enough now to know that's not what I want to do. And I think it was around that time I discovered they were called 37 signals at the time, but the base camp crew that were kind of doing this, they were building SAS and they were bucking the trend of having to raise venture capital. I'm sort of a risk averse founder, so I've never really been that attracted to the to the take a big swing and go to Silicon Valley and try to raise a bunch of VC. Like that just never appealed to me. And so to hear kind of this contrarian line of thinking about how to do things differently was really interesting and just like thinking about the economics of of SaaS. Like, well, I think I could build a product and, you know, get a couple hundred people to pay me X dollars a month and boom, there's a salary right there. It really intrigued me. And so I kind of started down this path of trying to build a couple things. I got involved in this competition in my local area that was called 59 Days of Code. You build a prototype of a product and you showcase it and at the end and there there was a cash prize and it was sort of a hybrid like technology competition and business they wanted to see an actual business model behind it and through that rob walling was actually a judge in that competition and that's how we met wow what was it like first meeting him i was a little intimidated to be honest because i had just read his book he i think he had just published <laughs> start small stay small and so he was another one kind of alongside like jason freed it was like rob was another you know person in the industry i was looking up to he he was podcasting and and it was really cool i didn't realize he was in the area until like we met at this this little pre-event for for 15 days of code and I remember we were kind of standing in this circle and everyone was was kind of pitching their the premise for their business. And there were a lot of people like, oh, I'm building a social network, I'm building a whatever. And then here's me standing there. I'm like, I'm building um, uh, software to help people write documentation. It was like this very boring <laughs> line of business B2B SaaS thing. But after that, Rob walked up to me and he was like, you're a little different than some of the other people around here. Like, it sounds <laughs> like we should talk more. What happened to that piece of software? I tried to make it into something for about a year and made all of the mistakes that that you typically make. Like I was got deep into the weeds on the product and didn't really think about marketing at all, despite like having just read Rob's book and taking in all this information. Like it was so hard to get in that mindset. I remember sitting in my at my desk, like, oh, okay, I think the product is about ready to to launch, where am I going to find customers? Like, I remember thinking this moment of like, I might have even Googled like how to find customers for your SaaS app. So uh, it was quite a learning experience. So what happened next? I tried a couple more times and, and failed, but each time I tried to, you know, not make the same mistakes I did before. So I built another product and did, did a little more validation, started to play around with marketing a bit, started to play around with SEO. It took a couple of years before I, I felt like I started to really get my stride. But what was the name of this product and what were those years? So the first product was called Guide Kit and no one would no one would know the name. <laughs> it never it's disappeared from friends. the internet already. <laughs> it's it's gone. It's gone. 
Remember when we thought the internet would be permanent? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can't find my projects anymore. <laughs> I tried to look up a Wayback Machine rendering of it actually a couple of weeks ago, and none of the images are there, sadly. <laughs> there was another product that I built that was like, it was sort of a clever idea. I was still, I think I was very much in the phase of like trying to come up with really clever things that not anyone was really asking for, which I think I kind of, I had to get that out of my system early on, I feel like, and learn that like, no, it's more, building successful businesses is more about like having your ear to the ground and listening for what are the problems really people are experiencing and expressing demand for. So this, the next product was, it helped you basically monitor Twitter for anybody who was expressing commercial intent for something like wanting to buy something and it would surface leads for you. So I called it lead screener and it was built on the Twitter API. It actually worked pretty dang good. Like I ran it across big sample sets and it was, it was producing like pretty good leads, I think. But ultimately like the Twitter, Twitter API, that was around the time when they clamped that down hard when like Twitter was moving towards like, shutting down clients and trying to bring all the experience in-house. So you made another mistake, like building on someone else's platform? Yeah, (laughs) I got a strong introduction to platform risk there, which, I mean, I'm once again exposed to it through calendar APIs right now. But as with most things, like you just have to learn how to accept a certain level of risk and every business is going to have it, whether it's, you know, platform risk or customer risk or, or whatever. Today's episode is brought to you by Pricing.com, a competitor price tracking and dynamic pricing software that helps all sizes of e-commerce companies make fast and effective pricing decisions. We all know that at the moment, it's ultra competitive out there in e-commerce land, and it's making it more difficult to get those fat profit margins. Pricing allows you to monitor your competitor's prices on a single dashboard. This means you can detect each price change and seize every opportunity to improve profitability. You can also set up dynamic pricing rules, allowing you to automatically match or beat any competitor's price without spending a minute thinking about it. As a revenue management software, Pricing allows online sellers of all sizes to grow fast and profitably with data-driven pricing decisions. If you want to compete with the retail giants without bleeding money, check out Pricing.com solutions designed to help you thrive on a tiny budget. What's more, they're offering TMBA listeners a huge 50% discount for the first three months. That's an amazing deal. Go check it out at Pricing.com. That's P-R-I-S-Y-N-C. And many thanks to Pricing for sponsoring the show. How was it that you came to be a co-founder of Drip then? It might be worth describing what Drip is from your perspective before we tell that story. So Drip was, I spent about five years of the last decade working on on that. It started out as a simple kind of email marketing product, and it bloomed into a full-scale like marketing automation tool. And what was your role at Drip? So I was the technical co-founder, but it kind of it didn't start out that way. That's kind of an interesting story. I was building a couple of these products, and I was kind of reaching the end of my rope, and I was like, I think I'm going to do some consulting. I just need to bring in some some income. And Rob, we were still like friends. We were meeting up every couple of weeks, chatting about business. And Rob was like, maybe you should come work for me for a little bit. And I was just like a part-time contractor helping out with, with Hittail. That was a SEO keyword tool that Rob had purchased and was rehabbing. He was kind of looking for some help to just someone to kind of do general product management stuff on it. 
work on retention and and build some email courses and you know do some marketing things and through that, we actually built the first prototype of the Drip email capture widget. Like I just kind of hand-coded that and we put it on Hittail and it worked really, really well. I think Rob had been kind of chewing on this idea of like entering the email space. But I think this was a pretty interesting like case study in like how to basically add an email capture form all across your website. Like no one was really doing that at the time. And so we sort of tested a proof of concept on Hittail. And then within a few months, Rob was like, okay. So here's what I'm thinking about starting. Do you want to be the guy who like writes all the code for it? And and I said yes. How did you feel? Were you were you at all conflicted because you had been on your sort of your solo journey? It definitely took a mindset shift for me to to be willing to step back from like being my own boss. But I knew Rob well enough. I knew this was this was definitely going to be a fantastic like learning opportunity to learn from from one of the experts. And as soon as we started working together, I mean, I just, I was, I was loving life. Like it was, it was so cool to watch him and just learn how he thinks about business and collaborate with him on stuff and really be able to cut my teeth and like get even better at building, building software products. And so I got to really go deep on the, on the technical side and it was really fun. Yeah. There's this kind of a concept I'm just like chewing on right now as I'm listening to you. It's like kind of like you're only as good as your last job. Like, I sort of feel like for a lot of entrepreneurs, I think I would even include myself in this category, depending on how confident I'm feeling that day, is like, to get to the next level, you're just your next job away. And I feel that a lot of entrepreneurs cut themselves off to the opportunity of taking gigs too soon in their career, instead of like teaming up and learning at, at scale, like you did. I agree. I guess one way to reflect on that is like, how different are you like as as an entrepreneur pre and post drip, like reading your process for like coming up with ultimately savvy cow to me sounds like a seasoned entrepreneur. There's such a confidence in your writing. It's almost like if savvy cow doesn't work, I'm just going to do the next thing. Like no big deal. Whereas I'm not getting that vibe. Like, like you were kind of like lost before you joined drip. I did feel lost because the truth is this stuff is really, really hard. and. I got a full taste of that again after the Drip journey ended. So Drip, we worked on it independently for about three and a half years, and then we were acquired by Lead Pages. So we were a team. We were up to like a team of nine or ten, and then kind of be, joined this company of 150. I got to see like, oh, so this is what it looks like to take a product and try to scale it with some venture capital dollars behind it. And then finally, like, kind of did my served my tenure there and decided to move on and was once again like hit with just how difficult it is to to create something out of nothing and align it with a market i was so inspired by getting real 37 signals that was their first ebook and i read that book and i was like right away i had like a mock up of like the it just felt so doable and I started running into Roblox immediately afterwards too. But I'm trying to figure out like what was it that you learned through the drip experience? Could you put your finger on some some things that changed in you that were different from the Derek who was merely inspired and capable versus the Derek who's actually, you know, shipping product that people are paying for and making a living out of it? I think the drip experience was was very valuable for me as a founder because you see a lot of these stories now where people start things and it appears on the outside to be overnight success, or which we all know those those don't really exist. It's always something that leads up to it. But there are there are a lot of founders, nonetheless, who sort of 
right timing, right place, things just seem to to really pop for them. And it kind of looks easy. And you hear sometimes founders talking about like, well, we don't we don't really spend any money on marketing. It just we just kind of tweet about stuff and then it just it just kind of grows. And those are fun stories to see because it's like, wow, this is amazing. But it's also like the learnings are limited from that because if things kind of serendipitously happen or there's too much right place, right time ingredient that goes into it, then you can kind of miss like the fundamentals of like what what are the blocking and tackling maneuvers that you need to execute in order to take a business from where it is right now and move it to the next phase, you know? And I think in the drip journey, nothing really came super easily that I saw. We launched and Rob obviously had his a bit of audience from his podcast and his book and just blogging over the years. So there was definitely people in the circle who were following and that got us to $7,000 in MRR. <laughs> and then we kind of we kind of plateaued. Which is not enough no. for two guys to live off of. <laughs> nope, not at all. You know, I got to watch and be involved in the problem-solving element of that. It's like, okay, what's broken right now? Is it our positioning? And we did a bunch of testing to hone in on some positioning. And we started investing in content marketing. And these things take a while. Just watching these flywheels kind of build up. It's better to have that kind of experience than, than the opposite, which is like, my business is growing and I don't know why. And therefore, I probably, like, if it stops growing, I also won't know what to do, you know, as opposed to like really learning kind of the fundamentals and how to think about testing channels, executing on them, finding the right people. Well, help me. Why, why were you stuck at 7000 a month? Ultimately, we built a product that just was not, we didn't have product market fit out of the gate. It started out as just really a simple email capture thing that allowed you to send a, a little follow-up sequence, and then it sort of stopped there. In the first version of the product, we sent a few follow-up emails, and then we would like push your subscribers over to your MailChimp account. We started with a hypothesis that like I think this is a, an, a compelling way to you know grow your email list, and we were super bullish on you know email marketing as a really powerful way to nurture um, people through your funnel, but like. It turned out like that little capture widget was just not that compelling. But what people really were hungry for was, you know, kind of a way to do more sophisticated segmentation and more sophisticated personalization. And those learnings came from from talking to customers and failing to convert customers and trying to learn why. And then we ultimately kind of mutated the product over time more towards marketing automation. And as we started doing that, that's when things started to really break loose. So I was curious as to how Derek handled that immediate aftermath of a big exit, specifically the one from Drip. As you all know, I've been through the roller coaster of emotions, motivations, exhilaration, and exhaustion that can follow an exit because the logical side of you says, I've got some cash in the bank, some experience. I'm going to go out there and crush it like right away. <laughs> well, not necessarily. In retrospect, I would have done it differently. So my, my game plan coming out of Drip was, it was a very meaningful exit for me. It wasn't like a, wasn't a never work again type of exit uh, in terms of magnitude. So I knew like, okay, I, I was hungry to be ambitious and start on the next thing. Turns out I didn't even take a week off after leaving trip before I like hit the ground running on my next business. Yeah, you were telling the story like, the day you left Drip was like the day you launched your next product. Yeah. So you you do have some insanity because you come across as like pretty measured. You, you mentioned like, oh, you're just building a lifestyle business. 
the insanity to not even enjoy the exit at all. Yeah. And it is a tricky spot to be in. In the months leading up, obviously, I was doing a lot of scheming and and trying to like figure out what that next act was going to be. Admittedly, it was pretty audacious to think that I could potentially be a replacement for Slack for Teams. I mean, and and to do this bootstrapped. And to be clear, that was what your next startup idea was. So Levels was designed to basically be a sane version of Slack. Is that fair? Yep. Which sounds like a great idea. Like, I don't like Slack, so why didn't this work? I mean, I still think it's a really good idea, honestly. And and there are a couple companies doing it. There's Twist from the makers of Todoist that is a pretty pretty interesting product, I think, and has a lot of the same kind of goals of like helping facilitate better asynchronous work, more organized, forcing things to be threaded. And so it has a lot of the same kind of things built in. I think for them, it's been watching their journey. It's been a slog. Like I think they're growing and I think they're doing well, but it's been definitely a difficult sell to get people to switch. And, and that's ultimately what I found. I spent about nine months building the product, you know, felt like I was doing all the right things. I felt like I was talking to customers. I went through a round of validations, did like $5,000 in pre-sales. I had close to 5,000 people on an email list that I had built up. Yeah, you did like the flight takeoff checklist startup perfectly. It's just like, we are getting off the ground here, people. I feel like I was nailing it. I think I've seen other founders kind of do this too. When you're coming off of like, okay, I just finally like put a bow on my previous business, sold it, made it through the kind of transition phase. And you kind of feel like you're riding on a high a little bit of like, okay, now check, got that done. Now I can take on the world and I'm going to do something ambitious. And I think it's a pretty natural feeling to be riding on that high and i felt like i had good signals coming out of it like doing all the right things i'm not going to make the same mistakes that i that i made way back in the early days turns out you can get a lot of bad information despite all your best efforts yeah i wanted to have you walk us through that concept a little bit you mentioned this book resonated with you called the mom test can you talk to us a little bit about what the mom test is all about it was a turning point for me. It was, it was extremely eye-opening because the, basically the premise is that, well, it's named the mom test because the author is giving you a framework for validating ideas, business ideas, but it really applies to anything. Validating ideas in a way that's so rigorous that you could even test an idea with your own mom who is most likely to lie to you in order to save your own emotions. People are naturally wanting to be helpful. They want to, they want to be encouraging. They don't want to give you bad news. And so when you ask questions like, hey, I'm thinking about building a Slack competitor that's way calmer, blah, 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 blah. would you use that? People are going to be like, well, yeah, I would definitely check that out. I, yeah. <laughs> I was aware, like, it's always a bad idea to, like, give a sales pitch and then ask someone, would you use it? If you're trying to detect underlying demand or, like, an, an underlying problem, like, you don't want to taint the well. And I knew that, like, I knew that at a certain level, but I don't think I fully internalized just how hard it is to not taint the well. What is a more rigorous approach? The key thing that Rob Fitzpatrick talks about in his book is like asking questions like, you know, you're kind of dance around the problem that you're trying to, that you're trying to solve and figure out like, oh, have you ever struggled with such and such? And if people say like, yes, then you ask like, what have you done so far? to try to solve that? Like, have you searched for products? So you're, you're basically trying to ask questions like, well, have you actually already taken steps to attempt to solve that problem? So if someone says like, oh yeah, Slack is the worst. 
And it's like, well, what other tools have you tried? Oh, nothing. <laughs> you know, right. There's a big red flag right there that like they're probably not actually interested in switching something. They're just complaining, which is totally valid. We all complain about things all the time and do nothing about them. It's like helping to drill down on like, okay, so do you actually have intention to spend money or or time in order to actually solve this problem or do you, is it really not that big of a deal? One of the things uh, I really liked reading through in one of your pieces, you were basically saying like, why am I doing this? Because like my motivation is a critical part. That resonated with me. But like thinking to level, I kind of got the wondering, like, so I, I'm getting to this point of founder fit, like you at the right time with the right situation. And I wondered if we tweaked your situation and like you raised funding, say a million or $2 million. Do you think you could have turned level into a startup that could pay that money back and like operate at a high level if you were building for another couple of years? I think it probably could have gotten there. I think I would have had to. So one of the things that I don't have a ton of experience in that probably biases me against going that type of route is I don't have a ton of experience building and managing teams. When you have funding and so then you have like a kind of a mandate to deploy that funding towards you know, building out a team and, and delegating responsibility and getting more people on the boat and getting moving faster. I think I'll probably eventually get there. Like I'm kind of, I'm thinking about expanding Savvy Cal team very slowly, but like gradually expanding that. And that'll be new territory for me, new things to learn. I think level ultimately like is still solving an important problem and could have been made into a viable business. It would have been a big challenge for me because yeah, like raising funding, that would have been new territory for me as a founder and building out teams and and making all uh, all kinds of mistakes on that path it comes back to risk right so if i were to go go out and raise funding it is a riskier proposition because if you don't grow at the rate that your investors are expecting right they're they're basically deploying funds in this asset category of like high risk high growth if you don't align with that we kind of know the stories about all the all the ways that those things can go wrong you th- i think of like rand fishkin with seo Moz, right where it's like when they did end up raising funding well it's a 20 million dollar business and that's not that's just a failure in the eyes of investors right which is just crazy to hear that type of reaction to a business that has grown to that level and so for me that's like that's just a huge risk in and of itself i think that things like tiny seed have changed the equation a little bit right where if we were having this conversation, you know, 10 years ago, it's kind of like you sort of have two choices. It's like either go big VC or, you know, totally bootstrapped and self-funded and, and really scraping by. And I think it's pretty interesting now to, to have this third kind of third option. So basically, you don't have to like dig into your savings or retirement in order to build a meaningful startup for yourself and for investors. Right. Tiny Seed is recognizing that no, a lot of profitable businesses are built, but not on the on the unicorn VC rocket ship trajectory, right? And that's an asset class that a lot of investors are willing to participate in. Yeah. I mean, having been through an exit, I'm curious, like um, you mentioned that one of the things that draws you to entrepreneurship is the unlimited upside of it. It's not hard to imagine Savvy Cal being worth tens of millions of dollars someday, right? How do you think about cash flow versus cash pile and like what amount of money like jason cohen says uh, the freedom line it's like where you can shelve financial questions for a lifetime like what would it need to be what would the number need to be for you to walk at this point 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's that kind of line of thinking that I think I'm constantly revisiting. Something my my podcast co-host and I keep coming back to. I feel like it always all questions lead to like, well, what do you really want out of this? What kind of business do you want to build? And it's hard because that's one of the hardest questions to answer. For me, it's always changing on like scale of ambition. Like I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too. I want to have, I want to build a company that's calm and fun to work for and enjoy the work, enjoy the journey. But also I want to be ambitious and drive towards that freedom line concept. I'm pretty inspired by, by that snapshot in time of how I'm thinking about it today is like, so I have some money in the bank from the drip acquisition and I don't have immediate needs for like cash flow. If I'm going to generate cash flow, my best my best place to invest it is back into the business to to grow it even more. And so I've actually been kind of morphing my, in my mind a little bit like how I'm thinking about growing the company. And it's like, I might as well at this point optimize for making this asset, this company as valuable as I can, as opposed to like thinking of it as, well, I'm just going to pull as much profit out of the business as I can, because then what would I do with that cash right now? If I'm building this asset, it's probably best to reinvest it. And so I don't know. That's funny. My, my calculus on this has changed through two things. I mean, one is just watching how money's behaved over the past year and a half. But two is it sounds like we had similar levels of exits, you know, and it's sort of like, okay, I've sort of solved the cash flow problem. Like, we could both be consultants, we could get good jobs. Like that's pretty solved. By the way, like I can remember the version of myself that thought all this was very, very risky stuff. And now I feel very safe, you know, so long as I can come to work. But now I, I'm putting all the cash back in the business too, because I'm thinking of it as an asset. I they're more legible to me as like what it's worth to other people. I like see that cash as realizable. You know, like I'm like, oh yeah, well I could sell it to so and so for X number and like get that cash back, but what would I do with it? I'd put it into an asset like this. So now that I've got that first step, I want to get to that next step. So yeah, very similar line of thinking for me too. And and I think something that's trying that I'm trying to break out of a little bit is, and I see this a lot in the kind of the bootstrapper realm, is sort of a scarcity mindset. Okay, so I need someone to contribute to the product. Do I look on like outsourcing websites and try to find someone for $15 an hour? Or do I look for someone more senior who's going to be really expensive? but maybe like, you know, not have to deal with some of the some of the challenges that come with lower cost labor where there's like a big language gap or whatever, you know. The kind of conventional wisdom is to be as frugal as you can in order to try to conserve as much capital and grow very 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 efficiently. And I think something that I'm trying to break out of is like getting more comfortable with spending money to make money and being willing to like pay the full price tag for the kind of person or service or hire whatever you're putting your you're investing your money towards i've been confusing scrappy with crappy my whole life yeah just (laughs) my whole entrepreneurial career yeah part of it is like maybe from the generation previous if you have like an established operative cash flow or whatever reducing your costs is the name of the game but when you're in a knowledge business when judgments make asset value we can be shooting ourselves in the foot and i think we've done that a lot in my at my company over the years essentially I've broken the barrier now where I've taken some funding and I'm actually taking a, a bit more funding right now from a from kind of an industry partner. It's sort of a strategic investment because they're going to we're going to end up integrating with them and it's going to be this good like co-marketing opportunity. Can you talk about that yet or 
I haven't cleared it with them yet, so I'm not going to be too public about naming who it is. Cool. Well, we'll follow along and find out. There will be probably some announcements soon about that. This is nice because this is going to be some funds that will give me some breathing room to be able to make an, another hire. And I think if I had been too rigid in my mindset about like, nope, I'm going to, I'm a bootstrapping purist and I'm only, only customer funded, then I think it would make my life a lot harder <laughs> and needlessly hard. There's another thing too, like we're thinking about, you know, we're both like gesturing towards this responsibility to get to a higher level for our own interest to stay engaged for our future. But also now you have a responsibility to investors. It's not all bad to like feel like, hey, these guys gave me whatever. I got to go get it back for them. It depends who you take the money from and the terms you take it. And I've seen personally, especially with uh, founders who take like friends and family rounds, which is sort of close to what you've done here, it's empowering to them. It's motivating to them that this is a journey that's important to more people than just like, what do I want to do this morning kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Most of our listeners are small business owners, but I'd say about 20% of us are probably like just got finished reading something like 37 Signals or listening to your podcast or whatever, something inspired them, but they're in those first couple failures. What sort of advice would you have for them? Keep at it. The best way to learn is by doing. Do your homework, obviously. Like, there's so many resources out there to tap. But, like, honestly, like, being involved in the community and in conversations with other people who are trying to do this hard endeavor is never more achievable than it is now. A little corner of Twitter where founders are hanging out and places like Indie Hackers, like, such supportive communities and very positive. So, being engaged with the community and I mean, when you really do kind of show up and get engaged in the conversation, like founders are willing to tell you hard things and call out mistakes you're making. And so the best thing you can do, I think, is is to kind of get outside of the basement and keep shipping and stay involved in the community. Derek, thanks for coming by the podcast. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Big shout out to Derek Reimer for coming by the show. And I can't wait to follow his progress over at Savvy Cow. You can check out his wonderful blog at DerekReimer.com. Also check out his pod, The Art of Product, and of course, SavvyCal.com. That's it for this week. Just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Pricing. Check them out, Pricing.com. And that's it. Hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back next Thursday morning as usual. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.